Hello, this is John Faithful Hamer, the Like Phil podcast. Um, this is part two of my discussion with Chris Wynn about money. We're going to be talking about the history of money and the future of money. Uh, so welcome again, Chris. Thank you. <laughs> Glad we, we need to have a part two absolutely after, after the last one. But yeah. I think it's good just to start off and think about what money is. Right. So if in history, because you have to make money strange, and that's what I try and get my students to sort of see the everyday as being strange. Right? So if you back in the day, if you had a market, I would show up with a bunch of chickens and let's say you have some wine and somebody else has some bread, and then I would trade a certain amount of chickens for wine and so forth, right? But let's say I go to you and I want some wine from you. And you say, well, I, I already have all the chickens that I want at the moment, uh, but I do actually want some some wheat. So I go over to the person selling wheat and I say, hey, do you want uh, to trade me some chickens for wheat? And then they say, yes, great, I would. And so I get some some big bags of wheat or something like that. And then I go back to you and I say, hey, I've got that wheat that you said you wanted. And you say, actually, since we spoke, I... I got the wheat from somebody else, and so <laughs> I actually don't need the wheat. I, I do actually need some, I don't know, jam, <laughs> strawberry jam. So now I go with my chickens to a jam dealer, and I trade it for some jam, or maybe I try and offload that wheat that I have now and I don't even need. And then I go back to you, and you've left the market because you have everything that you want. So if you're just doing straight barter, straight trading of, of goods and services, you run into the problem that it's not always easy, easy to exchange one for the other, right? So somebody came up with the idea, and this emerged in different places in the world at different times, so it seems to be uh, that it was filling a very powerful need. And they come up with this idea, well, why don't we just take this thing, something like gold, we've got this metal that is you know, it's kind of useless for pretty much everything else. You can't make swords out of it. You can't make armor out of it. You can't make tools out of it because it's very soft and malleable. It's pretty, though. We make jewelry out of it sometimes, right? And so why don't we just decide that this metal has a certain value? It's it's worth 15 chickens, you know, this amount of... And then when you go to the market, instead of me walking around with all of my chickens and trying to trade with those, I... So I sell my chickens at the going rate for chickens and I get a bunch of gold coins and then I go around and buy whatever I want with those with those things, right? But the first kinds of money were things like silver, things like gold, things like precious uh, jewels, even shells sometimes. But they were all things, actual physical things in the world that had to be collected, had to be mined. And so you had to spend a great deal of resources and yep. time to actually get this thing that was going to be the medium of exchange right so then at a certain point the next leap is to say we're going to imbue something which is absolutely and obviously useless like a piece of paper or a piece of canvas and we're going to say this is twenty dollars this is a hundred dollars this little piece of paper and right, and then we work from there but now what I'm interested in, a lot of things I want to talk to you about is that now it seems like money is becoming even more theoretical with cryptocurrencies where you're dealing with something that is just 
uh, a digital readout on your phone. I mean, what do you what do you think about that? Yeah, I think it's uh, an evolution. Like as you were saying, it's um, we're we're going from more and more abstract. Uh, understandings of what money is so like you said at the beginning you have the most conceived like most tangible thing that you could imagine which is a an actual piece of gold <laughs> mm-hmm. and then you go to notes so pieces of paper because maybe gold is difficult to transport or you know you can't break it up easily so you create these pieces of paper which are supposed to represent some amount of gold and so you now have a promise that if you turn in this this note you're going to get gold in return if you really want to and then we were like you know what forget the whole gold part let's just (laughs) deal in these notes like let's just you know disconnect from any sort of gold standard whatsoever and uh yeah and, and and then you start you still think about how how these notes are still backed by something and what they're backed by is the force of the government. The government, you know, enforces legal tender laws. Uh, it also enforces a monopoly over what kinds of money you can use. So uh, the example that I've given before is that, you know, if you try to make an alternate currency, for instance, Liberty dollars, people can look up <laughs> Liberty dollars, the government will shut you down. Like you don't have a right to operate Liberty dollars. It's just illegal because it violates, you know, the government's de jure monopoly over uh, money. And so it's still backed by like something material you know, at that point, which is like, you know, getting punched in the face or something. And now <laughs> with crypto, that's like not even the case at all. Uh, you don't. The whole point is that you're trying to move away from a system uh, where, you know, it's backed by force. Now it's really just it really just is faith in numbers. It's faith in mathematics. And I think uh, actually I think the motto of Bitcoin or something like that, or at least on some device like a, what's called a hardware wallet, it says in numbers we trust or something <laughs> it literally it's engraved on the actual device uh, and so it just goes to show that you know where we used to worship uh e- like a like a government or still a group of people now we're worshiping literal abstract entities like numbers you know? but don't you think it's, <laughs> it's mainly backed by trust i mean i i know libertarians are big on this issue <laughs> that it's it's backed by the state and by force and that's um, that's clearly part of it but yeah. part of the reason why we have national currencies is out of necessity i mean you look at the united mm-hmm. states in the early years after the revolution every state had its own currency and that was madness that yeah. was that did not work very well so putting coming up with a national currency was filling a very real need right yeah. I mean, and it seems to me that it's mainly backed by by trust and by people believing in that i mean there's a a story which I heard when I was living in the South, I don't, I have not been able to track down whether it's true or not, but even if it's not true, it's a really funny story and it illustrates a point. And it was the guy was telling me how his, in his family, they were like the worst criminals ever. They're like the stupidest, most unlucky mm-hmm. criminals ever. And he mentioned one example like to illustrate, it was part of a family legend. Mm-hmm. And he said that his ancestors had staged this really, really, uh, crazy sort of Bonnie and Clyde type bank robbery in the uh, in the South during the in the Confederacy during the Civil War and they had risking their lives you know with an armed you know, everything mm-hmm. had stolen a whole bunch of Confederate banknotes and then of course the South lost <laughs> and so those <laughs> banknotes were completely useless they had yes. bags of money that they used for kindling in their fireplace and it was absolutely useless so the fact that humans would be willing to 
risk their lives to get a bag full of paper is kind of amazing if you think about it. It is. That, we, that bank, bank robberies are to, like as Yuval Harari would say, the chimpanzees looking at, right? They would completely understand if they saw humans uh, dying for for perhaps bananas love, for, or for bananas. bananas or yeah. love or people like because you really there's a really attractive man or woman that you want and you are willing they, they could probably get that they, they could understand stealing stuff and mm-hmm. they could understand they could probably watch a ufc fight and understand what's mm-hmm. going on there it's a dominance you know yeah. display but if they saw people trying to rob a bank to get a bunch of paper they would probably think that was completely insane right so i it seems to me that crypto is not as it's more sophisticated in that it's more theoretical, but I don't think it's as different from what libertarians call fiat money mm-hmm. as uh, I mean, what, what do you think about that? Yeah, I think uh, fiat, it's important. I think sometimes they just use fiat to just mean like a government backed currency. It's they're less talking about. Uh, just the fact that it's not backed by something tangible like gold or something like that. Because, I mean, there's many definitions of what it means to be fiat. Uh, but what you were saying about trust is interesting because the, even though it is, yes, it's built on trust, but what is that trust in? And what you're trusting is that when you pay a debt with this currency, it will be enforced by the police. It's going to be enforced by the state. Uh, and another reason why... Uh, and so you're talking, you know, about how back in the day, every single state had its own currency. And obviously that makes exchanging very, very difficult. And it's just it's a lot more friction. So one question we might ask is, well, why don't we have a global currency? You know, like if, if you know, between states, it's uh, it's difficult. Why well, not we, we kind countries? of do, don't we? I mean, the, the American dollar is yeah. the de facto global currency, just like the English language is the de facto <laughs> yeah. language of business at the moment. It's the. Yeah. So the American American dollars are the sort of lingua franca of mm-hmm. the worldwide monetary system, are they not? I mean, mm-hmm. you can, I guess you can view it that way. Uh, I guess it's not de facto, it's kind of that way. De jure, it's not really that way, you know. And there's still countries where you can't, you know, when I go to Vietnam and I buy something, I can actually give US dollars. So that's, wow. <laughs> that works there. And yeah, Mexico's like that too. <laughs> yeah. But many countries are, are, are not there. I think a lot of the reason why, uh, governments or, or nations decided to make their own currencies was to be able to control monetary policy, right? They want to be able to control, uh, you know, fluctuations by changing the money supply, by printing money, by, you know, changing the inflation rate, interest rates, all that stuff. So they can control economic activity through the monetary system and maybe some other nefarious reasons as well, such as printing money to pay for wars and kill people. Uh, <laughs> right? Well, there's, there's, there's that. Right? <laughs> yeah. uh, and I think libertarians... Uh, at least the reason why they're so into cryptocurrencies and why they kind of invented them was because they don't like being beholden to that kind of system. They want to, they they really lament the idea of taxation in general, uh, and they view inflation as a form of taxation. So when, you know, if you had a million dollars and you just held it in cash from 1950 and you just held it, you know, and you didn't buy like real investments or anything, your money would go down. So they're saying, what's the difference between getting taxed that amount away versus getting it inflated away? You know, mm-hmm. so that's why they create. So you see cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin, and a, an important part of a, one of the motivating reasons for Bitcoin is that there is no central institution that you need to trust to maintain the value of the currency. You don't need to trust them with uh, monetary policy because the monetary policy is literally coded 
into the software. It says there's only going to be 21 million bitcoins, and that's it. You know, the, and so the val you can trust in the value of it. You don't need to, and, and and the trust is in mathematics. It's in software. It's not in people. I think like libertarians are kind of pessimistic in uh, <laughs> institutions where you need to trust people because they, and it's funny because libertarians are often accused of being very utopian. That's probably true uh, in many cases, mm -hmm. but from the libertarian perspective, it's also kind of uh, utopian when to them it's utopian to have a small group of people have a lot of power and trust that they're going to use it to uh you know good ends or not abuse that power you know so they're like that's really utopian how like and they think you know 100 years from now we're going to look back at how much power we vest into the federal government and we're going to be like this is crazy or like the federal reserve like this is insane how could we have ever thought that this would turn out well mm -hmm. I don't know, so i guess those are my comments on, yeah. on trust and yeah I, I just i wonder because right now the way that the way that governments control this usually is through right through taxation and you mm -hmm. have to pay your taxes and this has been going on for a very long time this is when you look at china you know, thousand years ago right 1500 years ago thousand years, they were having people pay taxes in a particular side kind of currency so you would have to get for instance the silver that they got out of the mines of mexico which passed through manila and then went to china all that silver was coins that were created by the Chinese state, and mm -hmm. you had to pay your taxes to the Chinese state in these silver coins, which meant you had to buy a lot of them, right? Mm -hmm. So right now you have to, I have to pay my taxes to the Canadian state in Canadian dollars. If you're mm -hmm. in the United States, you have to pay in American dollars. So I wonder what's going to happen when crypto gets to a point, perhaps it's already at that point, where it's impossible for the government to actually keep track of transactions. They can't tell who's trading with who. They can't mm -hmm, tell where mm -hmm. your money is because it's all uh, hidden. At that point, how can they actually enforce taxation? Yeah, that's a really, really good question and gets the gets really to the core of what crypto is supposed to be. And this is interesting. I actually was on the phone for like three hours with someone from the CRA recently. He's actually my friend, <laughs> thank God, mm -hmm. uh, about crypto. And because they're trying to come up with like policy of, you know, how is the government going to tax things? And, you know, what's the taxation policy with respect to cryptocurrencies? But that's a good question because you're asking, you know, how will the government be able to enforce taxation laws or taxes? And the whole point of crypto is you're not supposed to be able to. <laughs> That's the libertarian paradise, right? The libertarian paradise is one where taxation is not legitimate. It's theft. That's how libertarians view taxation. And so they created crypto precisely because they knew it would be a way of anonymizing your transactions uh, or keeping them private in some way or another so that the government cannot tax. And what they're trying to do is basically prove that uh, it's, they're, they're basically tr just trying to show that it's, show people and prove to people that you can engage uh, in transactions without government oversight. You know, they're trying to prove because and, and one argument for the state is that you're going to need a state to maintain certain kinds of infrastructure. OK, so one infrastructure would be monetary or financial infrastructure. That would be a monetary system. And then in order to pay for that, you need to use taxes and all that stuff. So the whole point of libertarianism is to say, like, no, let's just Let's show that argument to be false by just giving you an example of a system that doesn't operate under any central authority and one where, you know, taxation is not necessary and 
Yeah. yeah well, is it yeah. is crypto? This is what I hear very often. Is yeah. crypto basically you know, going to lead to sort of beyond good and evil? This amoral kind of Silk Road where you're trading in arms and heroin and stuff like that, or is is it possible for crypto to be ethical? It, do crypto uh-huh. communities, cryptocurrency communities, do they behave? in a predictably human ethical fashion. Yeah, yeah, I think- uh, yeah, Like so that, have they? Yes, they have. Uh, and How so? So, uh, so I'll make a, I'll, I'll mention one thing. So you said about like illicit things, so it's like narcotics or something. Arms, maybe that's a different question. You know, that's a more difficult question, but let's just say with like drugs, okay? Silk Road, you're, you know, you're buying drugs. On the libertarian view, the reason why they made crypto was, was to facilitate those kinds of transactions because two libertarians, Drug use is not wrong. It's not bad. You have the right to put whatever you want in your own body. Drugs should be legalized, including cocaine, heroin, whatever the heck you want. And so what they see is that they're actually doing like fundamentally facilitating transactions, which we might find distasteful, but are actually like fundamentally ethical because they're at bottom consensual or, you know, people are just putting things in their own body. Um, And as for like ethics more generally, it's really interesting because, uh, there's something in in these cryptocurrencies known as forking, okay? And, okay. And forking is when, so basically what a blockchain is, blockchain is the underlying technology of a cryptocurrency. So blockchain is just a database technology. It just, uh, it's basically just a, a decentralized database that memorizes everyone's balance at any given time, okay? And so you have a timeline of this, you know, so at time one, you have five Bitcoin and then at time two, you have seven Bitcoin or, you know, uh, and as as this database progresses, you can imagine it as a timeline, right? It's a timeline of different states of the database and you can actually split this timeline. You can have multiple parallel timelines. You can have many different timelines going on and forking is the process where whereby people in the Bitcoin community, so people running Bitcoin nodes, they're the people inside this network, the Bitcoin network, choose to go to a separate timeline, okay? Uh, And so this has happened before and it's happened for ethical reasons. So uh, there's another cryptocurrency that I'm especially fond of. I just came back, it's called Ethereum, by the way. And I just came back uh, from like an Ethereum conference in Denver, I spent four days there. Um, And in 2016, there was this big heist, okay? So they created this, uh, what's called Decentralized Autonomous Organization, which is basically an investment vehicle that was totally done in code, okay? So there would be various proposals. So everyone would pool their money together, and then they would, and this is all happening in software, okay? They would all pool their money together, and then uh, there would be various proposals, and people could vote on those proposals, and if, and these were investment proposals, uh, you know, if it got the majority of votes or it met a quorum, then money from the pool would be sent. Okay, and this was all enforced by software. This is, we're trusting in math, we're not trusting in the government to enforce this contract. It's, you know, it goes through. But the problem with this decentralized autonomous organization was that because it was in software, software is liable to have bugs mm-hmm. <laughs> and various, you know, uh, exploits. And so one clever uh, programmer found a flaw in the code and he was able to siphon off money from the pool, quote unquote, illegitimately. And I'm putting quotes around illegitimate because the question is what counts as legitimate or illegitimate in this space? Uh, and so what he did, he found a way to steal money from the, from the pool and he stole a lot. I mean, at the time, I think it was worth $70 million. And this is when 
Ethereum was worth like one one hundredth of what it is today. Okay? okay. So now it's worth almost a billion dollars, how much he, he stole. And so the this was terrible because a lot of people lost their money and it really shook the it really shook the community. So the community had to come together and make a decision. What are we gonna do? Are we are we going to uh, allow the 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 thief to, to cash out and to take his money, or are we going to fork away and create a different timeline where we reverse all of that? We reverse all the bad things he did, and then we continue on as if it never happened. You know, wow. obviously it's more complex than this, but like a, that's like the, a little civil war within y- the community, and yes. you decide to form two separate communities. Exactly. Yes, and so Ethereum actually today. So now you know now we're today now we're looking back actually decided on the split okay so there are actually two pe- two timelines of ethereum now one which you can think of as the legitimate timeline the one where uh the thief d- didn't get his money classic and- coke or like yeah, <laughs> yeah versus new coke yes like yes that. exactly so the original ethereum timeline which is the one with the theft is now called ethereum classic so if you go on to a website like coinmarketcap.com which is a list of all of the the different cryptocurrencies you'll see a cryptocurrency there called ethereum classic and then you have the just ethereum you know without any other name and that's the new ethereum where you know all of that was basically reversed uh and so you see how the and the the consensus was actually pretty high i think it was above 90 percent of the of the ethereum network and community agreed to fork off and create their own uh you know not like legitimate chain or uh, timeline of history uh and so you can see that the governance of these things is still profoundly ethical and there's still a social element to it 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 really depends even though we talk a lot about decentralization it's decentralized in certain ways but it's it's not totally a matter of software is what i'm trying to say um people still need to the software still needs to be run on a computer and computers are still owned by people and they can choose whether or not to run a particular software or not and so there's still social governance protocols that are still really responsive to ethics and i think this is a really good example of that okay well yeah in the last scene of fight club right they're mm-hmm. all up there in this skyscraper and there's ed norton and brad pitt and they're all the, that final scene where they demolish the buildings that are supposed to contain all of the records, uh, the, all the credit card companies that contain the sort of the balances that everybody owes. And so mm-hmm. everybody goes back to zero and no, there's no record. There's no proof that anybody owes anything. Now it's sort of an unlikely scenario, but I'm wondering with the cryptocurrency, you said that basically what the blockchain is, is it memorizes everybody's balance. Is it possible if somehow they're you know hackers everything seems to have a flaw somewhere if hackers got into could they just delete all of that information somehow so that there would be no record of everybody's balance so i could have you know on my phone in the morning it could say that i have 10 million dollars in ethereum you know whatever Mm -hmm. in this cryptocurrency and then a virus gets in and wipes out all of the records and then it's i have zero right so it'd be yeah. the same as the right those sort of legendary bank robbers from the south who <laughs> rob all these bags full of confederate dollars which are useless a couple of months mm-hmm. later after the south loses the american civil war so is that actual 
Is that possible? Could something like that happen? Yeah. So it's possible that there's a flaw in the software and that will cause everyone to lose faith in the currency. Uh, if it turns out that, you know, there's some bug that you could just set your uh, balance arbitrarily or something like that, that would, you know, shake everyone's confidence in that currency and it would probably go to zero very, very quickly. Uh, but I think the example you gave, which was it from Fight Club? Or yeah, which, yeah, Fight Club. So from Fight Club, uh, the the reason why everyone's debts were able to be, you know, cleared was that it was all held in like a building or in something. A centralized <laughs> it location, was centralized. Yeah. yeah. So that's the whole point of, of the, of, of the blockchain is that it's decentralized. Okay. So and, that, yeah. you see, that's, that's interesting. Cause like, you know, we, we both like uh, Nassim Nicholas Taleb and he said the difference between uh, the world of Wikipedia versus the ancient world is that it was possible in the ancient world um, for let's say Christian mobs and religious fanatics to go and burn down the library at Alexandria to, to burn down a bunch of libraries. And in yeah. so doing you would destroy every copy that we had of Aristotle's dialogues, yes. for instance, there's all these amazing works that you know, Epicurus wrote dozens of books. They're all completely lost. So when you have all of the vital information stored in a centralized location, whether it be in a library or in a database and it's all very, very secret, then it's fragile. Right? Yes, it can yes. be if it's if you destroy the records, you know, as that that demolition at the end of Fight Club, you can actually uh, reduce something to zero. But he says the strength of something like Wikipedia is that even if Wikipedia were to be hacked and it would be you know somehow the whole site brought down, Wikipedia could be put back up very very quickly afterwards because mm -hmm. it's saved on private computers all over the world yeah yeah right and so because it's really really decentralized it's harder it's like whack-a-mole you can't sort of get rid of it so if i understand you, you correctly this memorized balances for a cryptocurrency the memory of everybody's balance is in the code on everybody's computer who's yes. running this? Yes, okay. absolutely. So every... That's actually a really important point that I have not heard in anything yeah. on cryptocurrency. That actually, I think, would make it much more seem much more safe and less theoretical to people. Yeah, yeah. So a copy, I mean, if you're... I mean, people who are probably more in the know are going to be like, no, Chris, they're like light clients and all that stuff. Let's just keep it simple. Uh, every <laughs> The whole point is that every single node in the network is supposed to hold a full copy of the database and all of the history of its transactions from the beginning wow. of time. Yeah. How, how is that even possible? <laughs> how, how can it contain all that information? Something yeah, so it's pretty big. I think it's, it's uh, many gigabytes, several dozen gigabytes right now, at least on Ethereum. Uh, if you want to download the entire history of, of Ethereum, every single, literally every single transaction from the beginning of time, uh, it's going to be like 30 gigabytes or something. I don't know. I'm, wow. I might be wrong about the number, but it's something like that. Uh, but and the reason why uh, you the reason why this works, though, was because you have at least if you're a miner, you have an incentive to uh, store the entire history of the database, because if you are a miner, every time you, uh, you know, because you're maintaining the network, you get rewarded in some way or another. And so there's a financial or economic incentive to help the system rem uh, remain robust. Okay, yeah. well, one of the problems that's happened with a lot of currencies, and you can see this with 
with gold. You can see this with, with silver, you know, all sorts of things. The problem of inflation. Mm -hmm. right, so let's say if we take uh, mining of, of gold and silver, when you had a big discovery, let's say discovery of the unbelievable silver mines in Mexico, yes. or if you have a, a big advance in technology, which makes it much more efficient and much more effective to mine for gold, well, then suddenly you get the market is flooded with new gold, which because you've increased the money supply, that causes inflation. It causes each sort of ounce of gold to be worth quite a bit less. So I'm wondering, as we increase in computing power and we have advances in computing technology, is it foreseeable that miners, people who are mining in a cryptocurrency, will suddenly be supercharged and be able to create way, way more of a currency, so yeah. much so that it causes instability and causes inflation within a cryptocurrency? Yeah. Man, these are really good questions. I don't know. You've probably read up on all this already. These are amazing. Uh, yeah. So, you know, like, as you said, you know, if an asteroid hits and it's filled with silver, if it's sil filled with gold, uh, we're going to get a sudden like shock to supply and it's going to go up. And, and so the question is like, oh, it's going to go down in value. Yeah, exactly. So the supply goes up and the price goes down. Um, and so l will that happen with computing power? Because obviously mining requires computing power. So in the actual software for like, let's say Ethereum or for Bitcoin, you have a variable difficulty uh, on the mining. So it, it'll, the whole point is that on app, let's say with Bitcoin, on average, it takes 10 minutes for you to find a new block, which you can imagine it takes on average 10 minutes for you to find a nugget of gold. Okay. And they can keep it at 10 minutes despite advances in technology because they have a way of adjusting the difficulty of finding nuggets. Okay. So the way mining actually works, and by the way, if you go online, explanations of, of mining are terrible. Okay. It took me a long time to like figure out how mining actually works. But basically what you're doing is this, you're trying to find what it does is that it sets a number. It basically says, uh, you need to take so I don't want to go into too, too deep the details because it might be boring to people. But the whole point is that you take a block and a block is just a collation of the different transactions that happened over the past, let's say, 10 minutes. OK, um, and then you run it through something called a hash function. A hash function is when you put something into it, it just gives out an input that you like a random garbled input. Uh, sorry, a random garbled output, but you can't predict like the output has no correlation to what you put in. OK, so it's basically random. Uh, and it, it's deterministic as in like every time you run the same thing through the function, it'll always return the same thing. It's not like you do it once and it's going to return something different the next time. Uh, and so the whole point of mining is that you're supposed to try to find, you can think of the, the output of the hash function as a number. Okay. okay. So it could output like 10,000. Okay. And so the whole challenge of mining, it, what's coded into the Bitcoin protocol or into the Ethereum protocol, this is coded into the software, is that in order to successfully find a nugget, what that means is that you took the hash of a block that is less than some number. And that number is called the challenge. So you can change. So let's say that the number you need to, uh, the challenge number is 100 million. There's a lot of numbers under 100 million. So when you hash the block, uh, you can keep changing. There's a variable inside called the nonce. See, I'm getting a little uh, too technical here. That's, but That's fine. Okay. So the whole point is that you can keep adjusting a single number inside the block, which it, you can imagine that as, you know, looking 
looking in a different spot in inside a cave. Okay, and so you can keep changing the coordinates of where you're looking, and then hash that, and it'll give you a value. And if that hash, the output of the hash, is less than a hundred million, you have successfully found a, a golden nugget. You can think of it that way. And so as people get faster, they're able to change the coordinates faster. They're able to search faster. But what you can do in order to slow down their process and to make sure that it, on average it's always going to be 10 minutes so you don't get this inflationary process is by making the challenge more and more difficult. And so you go from 100 million to 10 million. And then when computers get you know another factor higher, then you move from 10 million to 1 million. And so you need to find a hash that is less than 1 million. You see? And so that's how you adjust the difficulty in response to increasing technology. Yeah, no, I, I understand what you're saying. I yeah. just, there have been attempts to do this with many other currencies and many mm -hmm. other commodities. And as far as I can tell, they've all failed. I can think of one exception, mm -hmm. which would be perhaps diamonds, right? De Beers has yeah. artificially kept the prices of diamonds high by keeping a lot of diamonds just in storage, taking them off the market, you know, creating artificial scarcity so the diamonds are more expensive and they they can do that because they control a very very large chunk of the world diamond mm -hmm. market and they control a lot of the new mines and they buy any big new ones that are found for the most part so that would be one exception but there have been attempts in the past to control the money supply by for instance um, trying to make it harder and harder shutting down silver mines or gold mines uh, in order to keep the amount of mm -hmm. money uh, at a limited rate, right? And they've they've failed. They've failed because humans are really smart, and if something's valuable, they'll find a way to get around it, mm -hmm. um, either by finding a, a sneaky way to mine it or by paying off the people who are supposed to be guarding the mines and mining, mm -hmm. or through counterfeit, finding a way to counter. Mm -hmm. So it seems to me if this actually really takes off, if these cryptocurrencies take off, I just I'm wondering how they will be able to prevent humans from thinking around this corner and getting around it and then uh, creating much more of this currency. Right. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know. And there's also the issue. Right. How exactly if people are not going to accept payment in a particular cryptocurrency, like how can you imagine when you don't have a government behind you sort of enforcing this? Right. How would you get around that? Mm -hmm. uh, well, so so is your question about, let's say, the like, how are we going to maintain the inflation or, or, or protect against like human ingenuity kind of thing? So as, as far as I know, all of the you know hash functions, all these hash functions, they're rigorously proved and rigorously provable using mathematics. So unless there's a fundamental huge revelation in, in the way we understand math, these things are pretty much secure. It's as secure as you can expect. It's cryptographically secure. That's why they're called cryptocurrencies. Because I, I always say, and when I explain, I, I do talks on on blockchain and cryptocurrencies all the time for various companies. And what I always say is, you know, a lot of currencies are already digital. You know, like when I move money around with an e-transfer, that's kind of just digital. I'm just moving numbers around. Mm -hmm. What makes cryptocurrencies different? Well, what makes them different is that they leverage cryptographic techniques or cryptography in order to ensure various things rather than trusting human institutions. It just uses the power of mathematics, uses the power of cryptography. And so this is one of those cases where uh, assuming that, you know, our hash functions, like they're all rigorously proven to be, uh, to have certain mathematical properties. And as a result, you can trust as long as nothing happens to mathematics fundamentally, 
you can trust that it's going to work. Yeah, no, my, yeah. my question is not with regard yeah. to the to the math and the functions. I yeah. I have every reason to believe that those <laughs> are that those are solid and they're yeah. That's not the for me the real issue is computing power mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. that actually is something which has changed over time dramatically. Yeah, and it many people say it's going to reach a tipping point soon where we're going to have computing technology which we had never even imagined yes it'll make all sorts of things possible and it seems one of the that i can imagine one of the unintended consequences of these new breakthroughs will be that somebody could find a way to just create uh more bitcoin like double the supply of bitcoin Uh on the market overnight yeah yeah and they would just devalue it dramatically so that's that's really good Uh, and i would say that like discontinuity that jump point at least in computing would be with the advent of quantum computers that would be like the huge yeah that that would be the huge leap so i'll I'll comment on on that on a sec so uh what i was saying like you can adjust the difficulty that's all fine right now for classical computers that's that you know i i think that the mechanism that i just described the challenge you can keep changing the challenge to uh you know in response to uh how fast people's computers are getting. I mean, it's been, it's worked since like 2008 or whatever. Computers have gone a lot faster since 2008, but the average block time in Bitcoin has always remained at 10 minutes because the challenge system is working. And so the question is, okay, that's fine. But what if you get this like giant sudden leap? So someone creates a quantum computer, okay? Uh, Many people think, so let me just talk about quantum computers in general. Many people think that quantum computers will spell the end of cryptography and cryptocurrencies as a result in general. It'll just kill everything. Um, it is true that the way that our um, our cryptocurrencies are implemented today and the way that our banking system is implemented today, if someone has a quantum computer tomorrow, that would be a disaster. Uh, but it's not true that quantum computers can break everything or make cryptography impossible. First of all, there's something called post-quantum cryptography, which are cryptographic algorithms that are resistant to uh, quantum computers. This is known as lattice-based cryptography. And then uh, in addition, there are certain mechanisms that we've already built into the system that allow us to defend against the rise of a quantum computer. Okay, so so there's a strategy. And, and And it's because of this. Quantum computers are not good or do not give you scary gains in performance for every conceivable cryptographic algorithm. So only a subset of cryptogra- cryptographic algorithms are uh, subject to the quantum, you know, the quantum fear, the quantum, yeah. So, uh, for example, hash functions. Hash functions are not actually something that are crackable by a quantum computer. You actually gain an improvement. Uh, it's true that quantum computers can can run through all the possible, uh, you know outputs of a hash function faster than a classical computer, but only by a, a quadratic improvement. So that means that only by a factor of, of a squared factor. Uh, and as a result, if you double the size of your encryption scheme, you can achieve the same level of protection. Okay. okay. Yeah. Okay, well, I want to just sort of back yeah. up for a second and take a sort of a larger theoretical yeah. view. Right. So one of the things uh, we were discussing you know, before in Yuval Harari's book, Sapiens, he talks about how the really great strength of the human species is mm-hmm. our power of imagination and that we can come up with these abstractions and we can believe in those abstractions. And when enough of us do so together, it allows us to do things in the world that would be completely impossible. So we 
create abstractions like the nation state, like mm-hmm. Canada, United States, um, Israel, you know, Russia, whatever. We create these these fictions, these things called uh, Christianity or Catholicism, Protestantism, uh, Islam. We create these fictions. We believe in them, mm-hmm. and that belief has very real consequences in the world. So you can see uh, why, for instance, the religion, and this is, you know, I mentioned in our last discussion, right, with uh, mm-hmm. Dean Hamer, who's no no relation of mine. He's been working on the history of religion, and he thinks there's actually a genetic uh, basis to this in the same way that he proved that there was the gay gene, right? That, mm-hmm. the, that, that was hard. <laughs> he believes that being religious is also something that is very hardwired, right? Yeah. And the reason why it makes sense is because religion allows you to create these supergroups that transcend kinship uh-huh. bonds, that transcend sort of simple tribal bonds and create super tribes, right? This is why we very often people, when they join a religion, they refer to their co-religionists as brothers and sisters, and they're creating a large kind of family, right? And when you have a very large family, that makes it easier for you to beat other families, other tribes, other groups, in competition. So religion, it's easy to explain from a from a purely outside standpoint how it's useful to the species and to groups. Mm-hmm. Right? Money also, when you take it from uh, in ancient history and you talk about markets in a very sort of rudimentary way, my example of being with my chickens going into the market and yeah. wanting to... That makes a great deal of sense. The gold... Having gold as a medium of exchange, silver, that makes a great deal of sense. And so, But as you get into more and more theoretical forms of money, it becomes harder and harder to sort of justify. I mean, to just the person in the street who's just trying to understand why am I doing this, it maybe becomes harder and harder for them to understand, like, what is the purpose of this? Right now, I know libertarians are very critical of fiat money, as they call it, that mm-hmm. is backed by nation states. And they say that this is a form of money that primarily, yes, it, it definitely is useful in, in various ways, but it's a rigged system that mm-hmm. is primarily to benefit the nation state. Yeah. So my question to you is from a purely sort of outside kind of utilitarian stance, right? Why is cryptocurrency a good idea? What what does it allow human groups to do that they can't already do with other forms of currency, other forms of money. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it really comes down to the uh, trust aspect. Uh, it's just removing humans from the equation. And I don't know if this is a... How sim- can you ever do that? Yeah, you can't really fully ever do that, but they're definitely reducing the influence of humans over these things. Uh, like I said, uh, the amount of Bitcoin, the total supply will be limited at 21 million. That's just the case. I mean, it's just coded into the software. You don't need to like, you know, cross your fingers and trust that Ben Bernanke or, uh, you know, the whoever the chairman is, is not going to you know, choose to print a lot more money and inflate the money supply. You don't need to trust uh, these people. And I, I don't know if it's a symptom of libertarians personality types. I think like I mentioned last time that INTJ personality types are disproportionately libertarian can you just for people who aren't familiar with that can you just unpack what that is yeah yeah so the intj is uh it's part of something called the myers-briggs type identity and it's just like this 
this kind of quiz that you can take and then you get like four letters that are supposed to represent four different dimensions of your personality. And so there's 16 possible combinations. And, uh, you know, I am known as an ENTJ and ENTJs have various, you know, general characteristics, broadly speaking. INTJs have various, you know, characteristics, broadly speaking. So what speaking. is the I? Yes. So the I stands for intuitive. Uh, the N stands, or no. Yes. The I stands for, uh, oh, introverted. Sorry, introverted. The N stands for intuitive. Uh, T stands for thinking. J stands for judging. So uh, thinking could be, is actually contrasted with feeling. So you could be an INFJ. And then ju judging is contrasted with perceiving. So you'd be an INFP, you know, uh, and you can look up the definitions of what mm -hmm. these things mean. But I just know that INTJs disproportionately from like I've seen surveys online uh, that correlated political beliefs. Libertarians tend to be the introverted personality types and particularly the thinking, judging personality types mm -hmm. and introverted. Um, and those kind of people you would normally describe as, you know, being on the spectrum. I, I know you've like written <laughs> statuses about this. And, mm. and so they have this, I think they like this natural distrust or maybe not distrust, but like misunderstanding or inability to like, you know, feel the weight or power of interpersonal relationships as much as people who have more extroverted, extroverted or feeling personality types can. They're lower on like the empathy scale. I think Jonathan Haidt's research, research also uh, says that libertarians are less, might be less empathetic in, in certain situations. And I think cryptocurrency the whole point of cryptocurrency one of the points actually there's many points to it but one point of it is that it's supposed to remove trust like trusting human beings at like at, at many stages of the process as possible uh and and that's i guess the 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 benefit i guess to them and maybe it's not a benefit maybe we we think that trust is like something that's inherently valuable having interpersonal relationships but for them it's like i don't want to trust you i trust math uh, I want to be able to verify everything with my own computer. I don't care what you say. I don't trust that you're going to keep the, you know, the money supply at so-and-so many dollars. So, you know, uh, removing that is valuable to them. It's, it's removing the capacity or the possibility of abuse, which happens when you send it through humans who have the like free choice and can, you know, can choose to act badly <laughs> or, uh, or not. Yeah. But you still have to have faith in the system you have to have faith in that particular currency and you yeah. have to be willing to use it so yes yes even yes. though there is maybe you're getting around like problems of individual corruption you still have to yes. the system itself has to you have to have faith in it yeah just yes, one yes. question if you had a system that is so completely free of human corruption then i'm wondering would it not be as a currency would it not be especially vulnerable to let's say an artificial intelligence that could just suddenly start creating creating uh, mining right and mm -hmm. racking up a lot of uh, mm -hmm. sort of big numbers in a particular cryptocurrency and yeah. there'd be no way to really tell that this was not a real person or a group of people that this was actually an artificial intelligence and I mean, can you imagine just discovering that that actually 30% of the Bitcoin on the market are controlled by an artificial intelligence. Yeah, so uh, <laughs> that's that's really, really good. We're getting very futuristic here. <laughs> like all the well, artificial It seems like very plausible. Yeah, it, it, it is. It is. Um, if So the hope is that any artificial intelligence that you create will still be subject to the laws of mathematics, as we were saying before. And so it, would, it wouldn't be able to... Uh, to do this but what 
what I want to comment on is that uh, we keep talking about mining, right? And, and, and a lot of these words that you're saying are totally legitimate, which is why actually now a lot of major cryptocurrencies are moving away from mining because mining is always going to be a function of computing power. And like you said, there might be these like jumps or sudden discontinuities that cause problems, whether with AI or quantum computers or something like that, that, that are going to cause, cause problems. And, and we've seen that in the past. Okay. Even before crypto, uh, even before quantum computers or these AIs, uh, what happened was that with Bitcoin, it was supposed to be that like anyone with a laptop or anyone with a computer could be a miner. Okay. But as it actually turns out, in fact, like the vast majority of mining is owned by like a very small group of people. It actually is like a small cartel of Chinese miners who who made circuitry, like they made what are called ASICs, like application-specific integrated circuits that are only designed for mining. And so they mine extremely fast. Your computer <laughs> has no chance against an, against an ASIC, okay, against a mining computer. So then, you know, the community had to fork off and they created things like Litecoin, which is another cryptocurrency, which, you know, changes the algorithm, changes the mining algorithm so that uh, it would be resistant to ASICs, resistant to these kinds of like Chinese miners, okay, to avoid centralization. But it, it's like a cat and mouse game. Uh, you know, there's a cat and mouse and maybe the, the, the cat is going to get too strong at some point. And so now some cryptocurrencies, major ones like Ethereum, are moving away from the whole idea of mining at all, which is always fundamentally going to be a function of computing power in some way or another, whether or not it's memory-based, which is the case with Litecoin, or computational power processing-based, which is like Bitcoin. Uh, they're moving towards something called proof-of-stake. Okay, And so uh, with, with Bitcoin, traditional mining is known as proof-of-work because it's laborious. You need to find a number that's below a certain challenge. That's laborious, just like finding gold. Uh, you know, and that's what's supposed to like ensure the stability of it, right? Because that's supposed to be difficult to find. Uh, and now they're moving away from that and they're doing something called proof of stake where what you do is you basically put in a, a deposit and if it turns out that like the rest of the the, the network disagrees with you or a certain percentage of the, of the network disagrees on the future of the network, uh, you actually lose your deposit. And so they're moving away from computational ways of enforcing, uh, you know, these rules to economic incentives or game theoretic incentives versus proof of work, which is like labor, mining, computational power. Mm -hmm. And for the reasons that you outlined, which is there's always going to be this cat and mouse game. Yeah. Okay. Would it make sense for a cryptocurrency to at a certain point just say we are going to stop at this point? So the amount of the amount of currency that's in circulation right now that is the end. There's going to be no more. We're not going to add any more to this. And so it's sort of a game of musical chairs and like whoever's on a chair now, you know, however much you have. And then yeah. sort of just watch the value of the currency go up at that point because there's a, a limited supply. Yeah. The money supply is com is totally defined. Mm -hmm. I mean, would that be, would that give a cryptocurrency an advantage or would it actually sort of impair its success yeah uh there are many cryptocurrencies that already already just have a fixed supply and uh, the okay. most common yeah the most common example would be tokens tokens are uh crypt you can think of them as cryptocurrencies that are built on top of the ethereum blockchain so the ethereum ethereum is kind of just like a blockchain it's a database layer and then you can define whatever the heck you want on top of that layer and there's a lot of tokens that are just when they were defined into existence 
there was just a stipulated supply. You can't mine anymore. And so, yeah, I guess their value could go up because it's inherently deflationary. Uh, and let's say you wanted to do it with Bitcoin. So Bitcoin, although it is hard capped at 21 million Bitcoin ever, you can never, once we get to 21 million Bitcoin, you cannot mine anymore. What are they up to now? Uh, I don't know what they're up to now. Maybe uh, like 13 million Bitcoin. This is a total guess, by the way. But like maybe, yeah, you can, yeah. See if a sub can check for us. Uh, but uh, it, the the community could agree tomorrow to be like, you know what? Let's just call it now. But that would require a fork because it would require everyone to now agree on a new software upgrade where the number, the total number supply changes. Okay. Because right? I imagine if, if that were to happen and they were to be, agreeable to it you know when you got to 20 million bitcoin mm -hmm. i i would definitely want to buy a lot really quickly <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know if you know that yeah. it's going to suddenly be yeah. something that's that's a scarce resource that's limited i mean because that's always people who talk about going back to i mean you know nasim nicholas taleb has said this often that he's extolled the virtues of the the gold standard and going back to the gold standard and mm -hmm. things like that and people who do that do it precisely because they know it's it it's something that is much more limited. It can't be artificially yes. inflated by Keynesian yeah, governments who are just like yeah. we let's make believe. You know? Yeah, like so. So what is it? How many Bitcoin is there now? Oh wow! Okay, sixteen, so. yeah, sixteen point nine million in yeah. existence right now, so, and they're capping it at twenty-one million. That's yes. the plan. I believe that's the cap. It's that's just built into the software itself. It can't, it can't go any higher than that. Okay. It's just built in. I mean, obviously, people can, and so this is important because what you were saying is that you can never totally eliminate humans, right? And mm -hmm. I keep saying, I'm like, oh, we're trying to eliminate people. It's, it's a, I think where you're, where you're eliminating humans in particular is the, is in the governance. Uh, structure as in it's not that you're eliminating humans but wherever there are humans in the governance structure it's decentralized it's truly democratic whereas mm -hmm. libertarians are very pessimistic about how responsive and democratic nation states actually are mm -hmm. you know yeah you know what there's a there's a i i think i yeah. understand what you're saying there's a wonderful passage in uh, henry david Thoreau's walden mm -hmm. which it doesn't get nearly as much attention as it should get. So, you know, here's this guy who famously, right, he decides I'm going to go off and live in the woods and I'm going to be by myself and I'm going to try and get to the heart of existence. And there's a one session there where he finds like a newspaper and it shows all the reports of the stock market. And he just goes into this like really kind of fascinating uh, thing where he's talking about the beauties of like the world market and the stock market and wow. how this allows people to sort of have individuality in them. So you don't have to deal with everybody face to face. All these amazing things. Yes. Can, you can be plugged into this network of relationships without having to actually deal with all of these people. Right. And so mm -hmm. it's, it's almost like a, an antisocial uh, <laughs> praise of, of the market as a way of making you super social without having to actually deal with it. Yes, 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 I mean, yes. So it's very similar to that. And it does, it allows um, all sorts of connections that, that wouldn't be possible without where you don't, ha it doesn't have to be all based on handshakes and yes. glad handing people. And yeah, yeah. So, so that's like, yeah, I guess that's the two sides of the, two sides of the coin. 
which is, you know, in some sense, we're being more social because we're hooked up into these like global networks of cooperation without even realizing it, without handshakes, as you said, or face to face interactions. But at the same time, we're also creating a more trustless environment and you get like the INTJs getting their like, you know, getting their <laughs> way and they don't need to trust anyone, you know, so it's, it's this weird dynamic. But uh, and I think there's a story you probably heard of it or I've linked it uh, before, uh, which is called I Pencil. And uh, it's a story called, it's a very short story and it's by Leonard Reed. And it's a it, it's supposed to bring to the fore how much cooperation happens with markets. And, and I think that's like a weird, a, a lot of people when they think, or a lot of critics of markets think of markets as very alienating and uh, not fostering cooperation, but rather fostering competition between mm -hmm. people. But there's also a deep sense in which it is cooperative. And this is like the way that free marketeers kind of come to terms with, you know, those, or respond to those kinds of criticisms. So in iPencil, he says, let's just take an ordinary object, like a pencil. Okay, this is the most boring, mundane object you can possibly find. And he says, well, when you look at it, there's wood, there's graphite, there's you know brass, and then there's rubber, mm -hmm. you know? But where did the, the wood come from? It came from a logger. And that logger had to use certain tools to cut down the tree, which was made out of metal. But who got the metal? You know, it was another company that, you know, mines metal into the ground. And, you know, so you once just from a pencil, you can see that when you purchase a pencil, you've actually you're part of a process or a network that involves billions of people, billions of people who live in different geographical areas who would otherwise hate each other. There's probably <laughs> Palestinians in that in that process. There's probably mm -hmm. Israelis in that process somewhere. Um, it, it, def it defies any sort of religious boundaries, geographical boundaries, national boundaries, anything. Uh, people who normally hate each other have cooperated in this invisible way. So even though we're losing out in some ways, uh, we're also gaining. We're, we're also allowing people to cooperate indirectly who would normally, if they were, if they knew who they were actually cooperating with, would never allow it. Yeah. Know? No, it, 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 that's always one of those paradoxical things that I've been amazed about in terms of markets. Like it definitely can lead to all sorts of excesses and evil and terrible stuff. But it is also interesting that very often, if you go into a community because you want to do business with people, well, you're going to actually, you know, learn, probably learn the language that the people are mm -hmm. there. You're going to listen to them. You're going to have all a set of interests and you're going to want to, this is what they call gentle commerce, right? Like mm -hmm. you're going to want to form a relationship with them. And that relationship is going to be obviously interested in your respect. You want you want something out of the situation, but it's a mutual interest, and so you have you have a vested interest in actually getting to know the people uh, on the ground, right? Whereas if you are going to an area because you want to get them into some sort of political system, you want to bring you're working for an NGO in the third world, yeah. or you're going there because you want to convert them to to Christianity or Islam or, you know, whatever. And in that situation, you're often much less interested in what's actually going on. Yes, there, yes. Right? Because you you have an agenda and you kind of, you have the truth. And so it is, it is what, kind of a strange thing about markets. And you can see this just in Montreal with like depths, right? Depths tend to be run, these small corner stores, they tend to be run by people who are, recent immigrants to Quebec, to Canada, and they speak many different languages. They learn mm -hmm. English and French. They 
get along with people in a neighborhood and they do so because they want to sell to them right and they want to like and this is malcolm gladwell talks about in jamaica the uh what they call what we call uh, dépanneurs here in montreal in jamaica they call china shops right because the Uh. the corner stores were run by primarily by han chinese immigrants Uh right and so they would right and it was the same thing there was his mother actually went to school uh, based on money that was borrowed by her parents from her parents from a debt owner, the equivalent of a debt owner in Jamaica, right? So mm-hmm. they, there's all these strange kind of bonds of trust yes. that happen. And even if you look at the way markets are distributed and have been distributed, it's interesting that very often it runs along ethnic and religious lines. So diaspora communities are very very often the ones that are responsible for trade networks. So you have for instance, like Han Chinese in Southeast Asia, they manage most of the trade. You have um, South Asians, especially Hindu Indians that manage a lot of the trade in East Africa. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Jews for a long time managed a lot of the trade in Europe. So you have these trade networks and they're based on uh, religious and ethnic groups. Why? Because you can trust somebody mm-hmm. who is a member of your group more than somebody who isn't because there's a great deal at, at stake. If you screw them over, they can you know ruin your reputation in your community. So you, mm-hmm. that's also, uh, there's a wonderful book by Saul Bellow's son. I'm forgetting his name, but it's called In Praise of Nepotism. And he makes mm. the argument that, that actually hiring family often is, is a good idea, mm. like because when you hire family, they have more at stake, ah. right? If they're going to embezzle money, right? It's it's not only that they're risking criminal prosecution, they are risking being excommunicated, you know, ostracized, ostracized yeah. from yeah. their their family and their oh, whole wow. group. Yeah. And so the more connections you have, informal connections you have, the more you can you can trust people, right? Yeah. And we've sort of if you want to take it to the libertarian standpoint, we've sort of institutionalized this with the whole idea of a credit rating, mm-hmm. right? And credit rating, I find it very fascinating that in the United States, the whole idea of a credit rating was popularized by some abolitionists in the 19th century. They were anti-slavery activists who spent um, a great deal of their fortune fighting against slavery. They also were the people that actually came up with the whole idea of a credit rating and they needed to do this because in a place like the United States where you had very, very mobile populations, it was easier for, it was easy for con artists to screw people over in one town and then just move to a different state and either come up with a completely new name for themselves or Mm -hmm. even go by the same name and, con a whole bunch of people in that new situation, right? And then just keep moving around. And because people, almost everybody that lived in a frontier town came there from somewhere else, you didn't have long-term bonds of trust. You didn't know know those people Mm -hmm. for a long period of time. And so the credit check was a way of trying to bring in the human element. Like, even though I don't know you personally, I can look up your name and the number associated with it. And then I can find out if you are a trustworthy person 
yeah. right, to deal with, right? Which is a way of actually taking this human element and putting it inside a system. I mean, that's yeah. right, that's largely what cryptocurrencies are doing, right? Yeah, and, and with cryptocurrencies, it actually makes, uh, it facilitates that kind of, like you can blacklist uh, coins that have come from particular addresses. And it's because everything is completely transparent. There, there's no, the, the paper trail is there. Everyone can see the paper trail. Like I can, I can, if I know what your address is, I can see everything you've ever spent. I can see everyone you've ever, you've ever sent to. I can see if you've, uh, you know, engaged with uh, like some a blacklisted address or something like that, and I can blacklist you as a result. And so that actually helps a lot uh, in in that regard. And uh, what you were saying earlier, which was really interesting, I want to build off that, which is that economic relationships kind of build these deeper social relationships. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's one of the insights that come from the libertarian viewpoint. The like liberals and libertarians are both called philosophical liberals, but they differ in one important respect, which has been really highlighted in recent work in libertarian philosophy, which is that liberals, left liberals, tend to really devalue or not see the value in economic liberty or in economic relationships they kind of view them as like you were saying like they're purely self-interested or they're very like profit motive so they don't think that they're like a genuine form oh yeah i, I grew up hearing exactly the expression i heard in my neighborhood was if you've got money you stole it yeah yeah so they, they always try you know detract from it and and there's this uh you you have some even high caliber philosophers like thomas nagel and stuff they they value you know like uh religious liberty and all kinds of you know personal liberty and then when libertarians say, well, why not economic liberty? They just say, well, because, you know, personal liberty and religious liberty is closer to the core of what it means to be human. But there's not, that's not, that's kind of just an assertion, right? That's kind of just, well, you just grew up thinking, you know, like, but there are other people who can see value in economic uh, liberty. And so Jason Brennan actually makes this point, uh, which is that he gives the example of, of a painting. Let's say you have a friend who, who you know, paints, you know, paints all the time. It's really easy for you to be like, oh, I love your painting. I love your artwork. It's a different story when you actually shell out the money and buy their artwork or when people <laughs> actually buy their artwork. You see, it, it's it's more meaningful and it's not, you know, you're not just uh, show me the money. Yeah. So, you know, it, it makes these these connections more real. It like puts something at stake, you know, and you see that also. And this is huge in crypto uh, in general, which is. Uh, in crypto, there's these uh, what are called prediction markets. So if people are interested, two examples of prediction market systems in crypto are Augur and Gnosis. And the whole point of them is to basically put money where your mouth is. You know, there's a lot of people who say, like, Trump would never win the election. <laughs> you know, Trump would never win. This is crazy. You're so stupid for thinking Trump would win. Uh but if you told them, okay, well, let's bet on it then. Mm -hmm. If you're 100% sure, let's bet. You can bet as much money as you want. If you're 100% sure you're going to win, then here, bet bet a $10 million on it. But, no, you know, people don't bet. And the moment they start betting, then you start then you start seeing the real, you know, people's preferences and probability uh, calculations actually start to, you know. So so economic liberty, giving people the right or or, or recognizing at least the value of economic transactions per se, uh, I think is like a, an important libertarian insight. Yeah, that's uh, yeah. so. Aaron Haspel says exactly that. He says that uh, sticks and stones and wanna bet are two of the <laughs> lessons from the schoolyard that we would be wise to remember uh, as adults. That's great. That, 
And so you'll notice uh, in online discussions when Aaron Haspel gets into an argument where that involves a prediction, like for instance, he won a lot of money on the whole election Trump, right? He would say to people, look, do you, are you so sure that this is going to happen that you're willing to bet on it? And it's funny because people very often get much more reasonable mm-hmm. when it comes to like, are you going to actually, so that, that is an interesting point. It's, yeah. it's very sort of analogous to let's say human health, right? I mean, I, you find people who claim to be very, very religious and they say, well, I'm just going to trust God and things like that. But when their kid gets hit by a car, do they take them to the emergency room? Or do they say, <laughs> in the name of Jesus, and just like lay, lay on exactly. hands and pray for their, their healing? Yeah, yeah. Right? Well, if, um, if they actually don't take their kid to the emergency room and decide they're going to pray on it instead, I mean, I think that would be a bad idea. <laughs> it's probably illegal, too. But I would be impressed because you're actually, you know, you've got skin in the game. You're yeah. actually really putting your as we say, your money where your mouth is, right? Yeah. You actually are willing to take uh, take a risk, right? And very often, uh, people, when it comes to their religious faith or their politics, mm-hmm. uh, when it actually matters, right, they suddenly become very sort of rational and cynical. And so you, you see, yep. for instance, uh, you know, I'm going to be talking in the next podcast with um, Nagesi Nelson and about... How you, you know, you'll have people who are very left wing and very socialist, but they send their kids to private schools. Oh yeah, right? I saw your So you'll have people that. who are yes, I just I just <laughs> trust Jesus for everything, and yet you know when they have cancer or when their kid get gets hit by a car, they take them to a hospital. They don't mm-hmm. take them to the church, right? So yeah. very often you can see where people's values really are by you know what they do, right? So yeah. I think it, it is interesting that money is a way of showing in a concrete way what people actually value Mm -hmm. yes and and i think it's really cool too to reflect on see crypto just people just think of it as uh you know well whatever it's just a kind of currency it's a lot more than that there's like the problem solving going on in the crypto space is very very interesting and uh i'll give you one concrete example okay so in crypto you or in the blockchain you can't get you can't just call out for information uh, using an API. I don't know if you're familiar with what an API is, but an API, no. an API is basically just, uh, let's say I want to get the weather for my website. I want to display the weather on my website. Well, I would call out to weather.com's API and it would give me a response. You know, okay. so every time I call out, so I just, what I do is that I code into my website saying, uh, whenever a user loads the website, call out to this API, retrieve the weather data, display the weather data. That's what's happening, okay? But the problem with the blockchain is that you can't do that. You can't just code in a call to an API. And the reason you can't do that is because it would violate the determinism of the blockchain. The blockchain is supposed to be verifiable by everyone, trustless from the beginning of time. Anyone who gets a copy of the database can go back to the very first state of the database and all the sets of transactions and trace through them until the present time and verify that they're all legitimate and abide by the various rules set up by the protocol. Um, the, that wouldn't work if the code called out to an API because that API could change, the, the result that comes back can always change. And so you need to find a way of inputting the data uh, that doesn't rely on APIs. And the way that you do that is through something called an oracle. 
okay? And you can inject new data into the blockchain, but it needs to come through uh, a transaction. It can't just be coded in like the, the website example. You can't just call out to an API. People need to, humans need to input the data, okay? Uh, there's gonna be a human element there. So the question is, how do you make sure that the human element isn't corrupted? How do you make sure that it's also most accurate and interfaces with reality in the most faithful way possible? And the way that they do that is through uh, what, what are called decentralized oracles. And those decentralized oracles are just what I was talking about before, which are the uh, decentralized betting markets. So the betting markets where if you bet with the majority of people uh, on an outcome and you're right, then you, know, you get a reward. If not, you lose your deposit or something like that. And that keeps people honest because it puts people like where their money where their mouth is. So it, it uses all the concepts we've just been talking about, about, uh, you know, how, how, how money and economics disciplines, you know, what we say and what, you know, because if we put our money where, the, where our mouth is. But you can see how those two, actually, that actually intersects with fundamental technological problems with the blockchain, which is the determinism problem. You see, and so that's what's really cool about the crypto space is that it's not just a currency. You have to, given the fundamental limitations of uh, technological limitations or the nature, the essence of what blockchains are, requires you to, to find solutions that leverage all kinds of crazy ideas, you know, cr ideas, you know, that you would think are not really relevant to blockchains. Yeah. Okay. One other question I had for you, which has to do with, yeah. I, when I think of what the biggest problem of money is any kind of currency mm -hmm. i think of the the idea of the dragon right you have this big huge monster that amasses huge amounts of gold and puts it all in a cave and mm -hmm. the dragon just sort of sits on this giant pile of, of mm -hmm. gold like coins smog. yeah like it <laughs> just sits there and it's it sort of is uh very interesting kind of way of metaphor of thinking about how the problem with currency currency is created from the beginning as a medium of exchange mm -hmm. and that's what that's why we have it but it you, it's possible sometimes to have individual very wealthy people or entities or corporations or something that just amass uh, huge quantities of this medium of exchange and then just sit on it mm -hmm. and if they do that it can potentially, if they do it enough, it can limit the money supply so much that the money, the currency is no longer useful to mm -hmm. people because it's, it go, its value goes so, so far up, right? And this actually happened a number of times in China. If you look at what happened to the, what the, to silver currency for a while, actually they, the money supply became concentrated in the hands of a few very wealthy people who were not spending it. And therefore, the currency, at first, the currency went up in value because of this increased scarcity. Mm -hmm. But actually, very soon, what happened is people just started using other forms of currency mm -hmm. because if the money supply gets too small, right? So one possibility that worries me is that it seems to me that with, with cryptocurrencies, unlike anything before, unlike anything we've seen before, the possibilities of having a a really couple large dragons that just s sop up like huge quantities of a cryptocurrency and then just sit on it and making you know themselves very very wealthy on paper but actually making it 
less and less possible for people yeah. to use it. I mean, what would you say is your answer to the problem of the dragon? Okay, right? so the problem of the dragon. So there's one thing that makes uh, cryptocurrencies interesting, and that whole problem is called the deflationary spiral problem, mm -hmm. problem where people don't want to use the currency because they can just hold it and it would go up in value until they stop actually using it as a medium of exchange. Uh, one reason why that actually happens in general uh, in with real currencies before cryptocurrencies was that let's say that like a, like the smallest denomination of your currency like a penny mm -hmm. right that's the smallest denomination or now it's a nickel okay and soon a dime but let's say that that becomes as valuable as a car then <laughs> like anything less than a car you can't like easily transact mm -hmm. in because there's no there's nothing to represent that small of a value so you need to go somewhere else uh one guard against that in cryptocurrency is that because it's purely mathematical the the numbers are very divisible so the point at which that would happen i mean they would have to it, it, the value of the currency would have to go so high for that to happen you know because the smallest denomination at least in bitcoin is 10 to the power of minus 8 i believe and in ethereum it's 10 to the minus 18. So that's the smallest denomination. It's minuscule. Uh, so you don't really run into the deflationary spiral problem as much for that reason. Um, but I guess a second point, that, uh, a larger point, and I, this is really interesting, and, I, and I'm getting like happy about it, my goose, getting goosebumps, <laughs> which is, uh, uh, let's say, but let, let's just ignore all that. Let's just say that like some group of people own too much. you know. And if you look at the distribution of wealth in the United States right now with US dollars, it's kind of like that already. Uh, but what can we do? What kind of like community enforcement? Like if we think that there's a problem with the distribution, so we have a problem uh, of distributive justice in the way, in the distribution of wealth, the distribution of holdings, what can we do? The cool thing about blockchains is that because you have the forking me mechanism and it's not necessarily governed by a central institution like the, like the U.S. government, it's a lot more dynamic. The community can be like, okay, too much of this this currency is owned by this small group of people. Let's fork away. And let's just like create a new cryptocurrency where they're just like not in existence anymore. And like we have our now our new alternate timeline where those people are basically bankrupt. Like they don't they don't have anything anymore. Wow. You see? So you have that dynamism you can you can change. Whereas you don't have that dynamism with a, a fiat currency because uh, there's just so much inertia behind it with like the government has, to, you know, it, it's all up to like the central institution. It's not, it's not easy to, to fork uh, in the same way. And, and a larger point about this is what counts as being just. Okay. Uh, so, you know, many people would say, well, the people who amass all that wealth, all these dragons, okay. In this crypt, uh, cryptocurrency, they amass all their wealth in accordance with the rules of the protocol. They didn't, they didn't, let's say they didn't hack the software or they, you know, they just, they received it, you know, they didn't break the protocol somewhere. They didn't like uh, mess with people's databases on, on the servers. You know, it, their distribution of wealth arose that uh, in legitimate conformance with the rules of the protocol. And so how could we, how do we have the right to fork away and, you know, make them lose all their money. Uh, and, and that's similar to what I was talking about before, which is the situation with the decentralized autonomous organization with the forking. The counter argument to the forking away was this, which was, well, what is just or what is law? What is the law is just what is coded into the, into the contract. It's it, the software is the law.
And so if I can exploit that and take a lot of that money and amass it for myself, well, by definition, it's legitimate because it was it happened within the confines of the software. Yeah, but I'm I'm actually yeah. yeah. I mean, I think those are very very interesting questions. Yeah, and I tend to be <laughs> pretty on the left on these issues. Yeah. So yeah. I think those are interesting questions about inequality and mm-hmm. things like that. I'm, but I'm actually at the moment my question, the problem of the dragon for me, mm-hmm. is is first and foremost a problem of currency. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's a problem of inequality as well, and mm-hmm. that that's okay. true. Okay. Uh, but I'm saying that actually, when you have a huge concentration of a, of wealth, a huge concentration of a currency, mm-hmm. that actually at a certain point causes the currency to no longer be useful. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so th- that's that's why I think uh, one of the when you have a currency that is subject to to inflation, a certain amount of kind of healthy inflation mm-hmm. on a regular basis where you're increasing the supply of it in a steady rate over time, then it actually encourages dragons to invest their gold, to invest their money in new businesses and new yeah. ideas because if they just sit on it in their cave, it will dwindle in value and become less smaller and smaller, right? So yeah, you want yeah. you want to actually... I, I think a certain amount of inf- obviously if inflation gets out of control then yeah then that's a disaster we all know that but a certain amount of inflation it seems to me is is a solution to the problem of the dragon yeah because yeah. you say like if you just sit on your wealth and and collect the checks if you don't engage in venture capitalism if you don't mm-hmm. invest in the economy um, and get some then you'll you'll lose it over time right so I yeah. I think and that's why I think uh, Keynes and others were onto something when they said that we have to if you invest if you give money to people right to people at the bottom of the economic system then they're going to go and spend money and they're going to keep the whole system going they're going to keep the currency doing what it's supposed to do right Mm -hmm. whereas if you just if you allow way too much yeah inequality to develop then at a certain point the, the system crashes for everybody, yeah. even for the very wealthy. Uh-huh. Right? Uh-huh. Yeah, so I think that that was primarily uh, addressed with the 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 divisibility problem. I think most of that really comes up with divisibility. Like there's no problem in transacting in like 0.000001 Bitcoin, but there is a problem with doing like 0.1 of a penny, you know? And so because it's so divisible, it avoids that problem for the most part. But suppose it got so bad, you still have the ability to fork away. Like distributive justice, like substantive questions about distributive justice aside, you could always fork away if that was a problem where it's not easy. It's not as easy to fork away uh, with fiat currencies. Okay. Well, another thing, this is I want to imagine how this would apply to to cryptocurrencies. So you take the Mexican cartels right now. They Uh They make most of their money by selling selling drugs in the United States, and so they get lots of like actual paper money from street transactions, mm-hmm. and then they have to find a way to launder that money. And, and since 9/11, the forensic accounting departments have become much more intense. They've clamped down, and they can monitor how you know what people their transactions online and things like mm-hmm. that. And so very often they actually have to take 
like huge 18 wheelers full of <laughs> yeah. like bills like and take them across over into mexico and then they have to find ways to deposit them in yeah into banks in mexico city and it's quite fascinating i'm wondering yeah would cryptocurrency make it easier for cartels to do what they uh -huh. do uh, would it make it easier for al-qaeda yeah. and isis to do what they yeah. do terrorist organizations criminal organizations i mean would it actually yeah. be really good for them yeah that's a good question uh before i answer that i just want to i just remembered now which is that i i don't think ethereum right now is capped it doesn't have like a limit so you know, like i said bitcoin is 21 million i'm not sure ethereum actually has a cap right now i think they're going to impose a cap at some point but you could just easily define a cryptocurrency that doesn't have a cap so then you just get rid of that deflationary spiral problem just at the protocol level just like agree that there's not going to be a limited supply uh um with the question about the cartel so one thing again to keep in mind is uh for libertarians a lot of these transactions are actually supposed to be legitimate like narcotic transactions but of course like there's going to be illegitimate transactions there's going to be people who traffic children and stuff and they get mm -hmm. paid in bitcoin uh so what do we do about that um i think that's what bitcoin allows you to do is is uh you can because the ledger because the the database is fully public and everyone has a copy of it uh you can see the history of transactions everyone can see every transaction ever uh and you can blacklist various coins and so you can still have uh communities go in and blacklist so that's what happened that was uh, with the fork um for uh the the dao situation that i talked about before on ethereum uh one of the resolu one of the proposals was well let's just instead of like you know let's say reversing history let's just blacklist all of those coins so all the coins that like went to that address blacklist them and you can just put that into their software and it'll just reject everyone who's running a node will just reject things that come from there so then you just take their money and bring it to zero whereas it's not as easy to do that with paper currency you know you can still spend it on the street well it is yeah it would be sort of wouldn't it be analogous to getting the the serial numbers yes, yes it would be on bills and saying these these bills were robbed from this bank in new york and so have everybody on the lookout for bills with these serial numbers or uh, what they do with blood diamonds mm -hmm. where if you get diamonds from some some sort of con conflict region yeah, horrible yeah, yeah. where they were child soldiers like murdering <laughs> yeah. people and they can actually figure out uh, at the molecular level that there's a there's tells where you can you can tell where for instance where mm -hmm. gasoline came from in yes. the world you can tell you can tell where diamonds came from where okay. yeah. they'll have and so you can say we will be on the lookout for any diamonds that have these markers right so it it's, it, it it is the same thing yeah exactly it is the same thing as that as the serial numbers on the on the bills it's just that it actually makes it feasible and possible to do so uh because you know at any given time people aren't constantly keeping track of the serial numbers and and who has various bills you know so we can't we might know some but it's not easy to and it's it's difficult to enforce whereas with the blockchain it makes it very very easy to enforce it's just part of the system where everything is transparent you'll see like you know if if they got all their money from a bunch of drug dealers in the street. You, you don't you don't know the serial numbers of those, right? And you don't know where the money's going. You can't. It's really hard. And they, if they put into a dark truck, you don't know what serial numbers are in that truck. But with the blockchain, everything is transparent. That's one of the the great parts of it is that it's so transparent. There are 
of course, some um, dark cryptos, though. Uh, they're called privacy coins, which eliminate that ability, though. So what, everything I've been talking about so far is called anonymity. Uh, like, it's true that blockchain ensures a level of a high level of anonymity, but it's not it doesn't ensure a high level of privacy. So if you can associate someone's name with a particular address, then you can blacklist all their stuff. But there's actually a way of making all of these transactions just completely encrypted. Like you can't wow. even tell. And those are called privacy coins. So the two big examples of privacy coins are Monero and Zcash. And uh, Monero has a reputation for being used like for criminal purposes. Oh. Yeah, <laughs> precisely because it's completely private. Like you can't even blacklist things. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> hey. Well, this has been absolutely fascinating yeah. talking to you about the future of money. And I hope to talk to you again in the future. Have yes. you on the podcast again. Thank right. you so Thank much. Thank you very John. much. It was awesome. Thank you.